Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. How are you doing this week, Rachel? I'm good. It's exam season, so that's that, but I'm excited. I mean, this is like I feel like, like it's break. always exam season with you. Yeah, that's sort of what happens when you do your master's. <laughs> There's exams everywhere all the time. I remember being in school when basically midterms came, and then there was another wave of tests and assignments, and then another wave the week after, and then there was reading week, but you had a crazy big assignment due on Monday and Tuesday, and as much as I miss university, I, I don't miss university, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. I definitely feel that. But this is, I think this is my last year where I actually have exams, because then um, my second year basically just goes straight into research only. So I'm hoping I don't have to write any more like medically related exams. So you'd say that you're not doing too great right now. I think you feel just like the New Jersey Devils who uh, weren't doing so great after the first period last night. Yeah, I mean, I turned on the TV and I actually thought it was a misprint and I had to text someone to ensure that the graphics were correct. Yeah, what was it, 5 nothing after the first it period? It was Buffalo 5 was nothing with two them. minutes left in the first period when I turned it on. Yeah. So noted powerhouse, uh, the Buffalo Sabres, are just kicking the crap out of the New Jersey Devils. Who just uh, Things just keep looking better and better for Taylor Hall and P.K. Subban there. Yeah, it's... Uh... Times are not great there, and I think based on what our topic is today, this game might come up as an example because it's topical and useful. It just might. Before we get into score effects, can I quickly ask you what your opinion of New Jersey is this year? Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Rachel used to work for the New Jersey Devils, so she has to tiptoe around her answer here, but I'm just I'm curious about your thoughts on the disaster that is the 2019-2020 New Jersey Devils season. Um... I think that they went out and they got a lot of players with a ton of talent. And obviously you want to add talent to your team anytime you can do that. So I think they did a really good job of doing that. Um, However, it was no secret that their biggest deficiency was the goaltending. And it has been their biggest deficiency for more than a few seasons now. Um, And some of that's hard when Corey Schneider is tied up in your cap. And I know they waved him, I think, this year. Yeah, he's down in Binghamton now. But... I think sad. at some point when you are looking to make these acquisitions, you are looking to make your team better. Realistically, we've seen it with basically every other team. You can have all the talent in the world skating around, but if you don't have a goaltender, it does not matter. I mean, the San Jose Sharks tried everything to disprove that theory last year. Yeah, and they basically outscored their goaltending. And New Jersey isn't doing that. I was going to say, how far did the Sharks make it? Because they, they made it past the Vegas Golden Knights in that first round because they scored four goals on a five-minute uh, power play. By the way, I hate that Vegas uses that as an excuse. Maybe don't allow four goals on the penalty kill. Yeah, maybe, maybe don't, do don't allow that. Um, but, but I would how say... How did the Sharks make it without a goalie? Because it is possible. It, it is, but I think the Sharks at least had some depth. Whereas I think with the Devils right now, all of their skill, with the exception basically of Taylor Hall, is young. Up front, at least, right? Going Hishier, Jack Hughes. Jack Hughes is still adapted to the NHL, unfortunately. Jesper Bratt, Pavel Zaka isn't really a skill guy, but he can still shoot the puck very well. Kyle Palmieri's old, Taylor Hall's old, 
Durr, like he's still like 20. Damon Severson's really good, but he'd probably be better quarterbacking a second pair as opposed to a top pair. There's there's not really that Or tr- just, you know, playing at all in a role that is suitable for him. I think they've always been missing that kind of top flight, top pairing defenseman who can take the tough minutes, and they were really hoping Subban could do it. And it's it's sad to say, but I just I don't think PK Subban's ever going to be the same anymore. I think after that last leg injury, was it an ankle injury? I think it was. Yeah, he hasn't been the same ever since it. Because before, if you look at the numbers, Dom had a really interesting point about this before and after the injury. Before the injury, like elite number one defenseman. After the injury, replacement level player. I don't think he's quite that. I think he's probably more of like a you know second pairing defenseman maybe at this point. But he's not PK Subban. And he's being paid $9 million. And I think this is why teams weren't eager to to get him because he still has, what, two more years left on his contract? Or is it three more years? Well, I think it's two after this year. But either way, like to me, the, the way I look at it is, uh, I want to say in his season-ending press conference last year, Hines talked about the need to inject more talent and the need to get uh, an answer and goal. And, and they did inject more talent, so that box was ticked obviously anytime you can draft first overall you should be getting more talent um but some of the trades they made they injected more talent signing Nikita Gusev but at the end of the day like Mackenzie Blackwood is developing he's not ready to be an NHL starter yet and they got zero help right so for me to just not address that um I think is a big problem and you can't say that this season is all on Hines because it clearly isn't all on him. Like players aren't at performing. the same time. If the team is underperforming relative to the talent on the roster, as we've seen in so many different situations, look at Toronto, look at St. Louis last year, look at the Penguins a few years ago. Isn't a change behind the bench kind of necessary at this point? They already made a change behind the bench. They've added their assistant general manager, who used to be an assistant coach, to behind the bench, and nothing. That's changed. like a creepy tattletale situation. It totally I don't is. Know. It totally That's not is. A healthy work environment but yeah we'll, we'll just leave that there in terms of healthy working environment because like anytime you add a very senior member of the organization to the bench like think about the days where the gm used to fire the coach and the gm would be behind the bench you are on Lula Morello three shells. days before the playoffs fired uh what's his face um Robbie Fatoric no um who was it was it Jacques Lemaire man that guy the the most boring hockey coach of all time Either way, like, think about it. When you have someone in senior management who is now on the bench and in the dressing room all the time, you're walking on eggshells. Because essentially, like, I don't think Tom Fitzgerald is necessarily like this, but there is that he could be a snitch element to the morale of the dressing room. It was Jacques Martin, by the way, that was really bothering me. It was Jacques Martin. He fired, I want to say it was three games before the playoffs, and then Lou Lamorello went into the playoffs as the head coach. It was the most badass thing I've ever seen. It didn't work, but it was just some like mafia style thing that I, I can't imagine anyone else doing that. Yeah. So that is, I mean, obviously my very tiptoey opinion of the devils. Maybe I feel like I would, I didn't really tiptoe there. Yeah. I feel like you did a pretty good job. You made that tightrope walk look a lot easier than it actually is because you do have a non-disclosure agreement that you can't, uh, you know what? You're trying very hard not to get sued every time we record a podcast. It's literally you trying to provoke me at this point. And what a lot of people can't tell is that I'll say something, then I'll laugh and I'll wait for your silence knowing that you can't say anything. And it's just, it's one of my favorite things. Exactly. And that's why nobody knows what my fantasy name is on this podcast, because we just it's too funny of a joke. But 
The topic du jour, speaking of the New Jersey Devils, is score effects. They were down 5 nothing in the first period, and the thing about score effects is I want to talk about it more when it's a one- or a two-goal game, or even maybe a three-goal game, where at least there's a, there's a realistic chance of the team that's losing coming back. I mean, then again, if, if you're down five and you're facing the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, there's always a chance. But the thing about score effects is that when one team scores, it's going to alter how both teams play. And in theory, it shouldn't. In theory, you should always be playing the same way and trying to, you know, drive goal differential in the best way possible. But the regular season standings encourage you to get to overtime. Which so we, you- is, we spoke about this, and it's, first of all, that's terrible. It's garbage, but if you're smart, you're going to play for a tie when you're up by one goal in the third period. You're going to try to shut things down, flip the puck in, rag the puck, you know, hold on to possession. You're not going to be too worried about goal creation. Your main focus is goal prevention at that point. And that's the thing about score effects. In the first and second period, they tend not to be that strong, but they really kick in in the last 10 minutes of the third period is when it's, you can really It's see. almost like... Score effects is the nerd way of saying parking the bus because like obviously I I coach hockey and we did some serious bus parking uh, at various points throughout the first half of our season and like sometimes it worked and sometimes the score effects kind of bit us in the butt a little bit as sometimes that happens when you give up that amount of scoring chances and you don't get any because you are have the e-brake on and then the bus parking with the pylons the cement barriers like you're gonna give up shots if all you do is skate to center ice and dump the puck in <laughs> and what a lot of people have argued is that at that point isn't it just better to try to generate a goal that way if you give one up you have that insurance goal and mathematically a lot of people have been trying to prove over the last you know a few years that hey take these high risk high reward players because the pros outweigh the cons and then the coach's argument is yeah but if I'm winning I don't want to put that player on the ice because I can't trust them it's kind of this weird dichotomy and I know Michael Blake McCurdy has these really interesting charts and you can see how oh, a coach which charts because he has many interesting charts I love his stuff he has a lot of great stuff so the one that i'm referring to is basically when do you use a player when you're winning when do you use a player when you're losing and if the player's in the top right you use them all the time if the player's in the bottom right you use them all the time when you're winning but not when you're losing if he's in the top left you use them all the time when you're losing not when you're winning and if it's in the bottom left it's frederick gotet no i'm just kidding but (laughs) if he's in the bottom left he doesn't play very often so examples of those players give an example of a player in each category so i'm assuming mcdavid you play all the time every time no matter what yeah i was gonna say like bergeron is probably the perfect example oh yeah that's a really good problem maybe somebody like miko koivu when you're protecting a lead yeah, Miko Koivu, I want on the ice if I'm holding a, a one-goal lead. Or even if if you're just thinking about like the natural grinders on a team. In Toronto, it's like the Zach Hyman, Ilya Mikhaev types. Someone you'd want on the penalty kill. Someone you trust in their own end. Not someone you, you necessarily care about their scoring talent at this point. Because again, the goal is, is goal prevention at this point. So what you're saying is if you're down a goal, you want David Pasternak on the ice. Well, I think you just want David Pasternak on the ice. All the time. You know in general, I'd take him on the ice for $10 million, let alone 6.6. 25 goals in 27 games. What a season he's having. Okay, so he's on the Boston Bruins. He's their best player this season, arguably, him and Marchant. And I love him. And there's something wrong with me. The inner Leafs fan in me loving a Boston Bruin just, it's so broken. My brain is kind of glitching out here. I don't know what to do. Yeah, you're broken. But also, 
I can get on board with that because I, when I was playing hockey, used to watch Patrice Bergeron a ton because that's who I wanted to be like. And if we were talking about players, you know, like the high leverage, low leverage situations, think of someone like Alexander Radulov. When you're losing, you're going to double shift him. And when you're winning, he might not play the last 10 minutes of the third period. He probably shouldn't play the last 10 minutes of the third period. (laughs) That's like the Kevin Fiala thing. It's the Jason Spezza thing. We're seeing it in Toronto right now. Jason Spezza might be the worst defensive player in the NHL right now, but he's very skilled and he's a very good passer. So he's kind of a perfect example of if you're losing, you want him on the ice because he can help you get a goal. If you're winning, again, in the last 10 minutes of a third period, you don't want him to touch the ice because he scares you. Even though he's creative, he might turn the puck over in his own end and then the other team gets a scoring chance. So... I think when we're talking about score effects, we need to be very clear what we're talking about. In the first and second period of a one or two goal game, I don't think they're that crazy. They, they don't be, they're, they're not over the top ridiculous. In the last 10 minutes of the third period, a team will completely change the way they're playing. Well, I also think it's important to point out, and we can use the New Jersey Buffalo game as an example. When a team is leading 5 nothing after the first period, like you and I were talking about offline, you basically just throw that game in the garbage. It doesn't mean anything. You're not going to learn anything from it. But if or at you, least from that point onwards, you know what I mean? Like the players have given up. If you look at how many shots the Devils had after the first period, like they were totally out shooting the Sabres and you, they better be. They're down 5 nothing or 7-1 after two periods. Like you would hope they're out shooting the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, so even if when you look at the score adjusted Corsi, the score adjusted um, you know, scoring chances, expected goals, you can't truly score effect for a five goal differential, you know? It's just such a gut punch that I don't you know. You just throw it in the garbage. Like that's a burn the game tape type of burn the stats and burn the game tape. Then there's also that Canada Russia second period in the was it the gold medal game or was it it was an elimination game? It was game the third the period of the gold medal game and Mark Vizantine was in net. And I'm pretty sure Artemi Panarin scored the gold medal winning goal. But wasn't wasn't it the second period where there were like four goals by one team and three goals by the other team or something crazy? No, no, no. That's that wasn't that game. Um, okay, I'm thinking of a different game. Yeah. That's the game I'm referring to. This is, is what happens in junior hockey. Like there was an 11-10 game in the OHL the other like a week ago. And that's another thing. There was a great <laughs> Alexis Lafreniere clip the other day that I saw, and I like I put it out there. I'm like, this is unbelievable. He's so and a good. Lot of the comments. One of the comments was. Who are all those ice cream truck uh, drivers out there on defense? Like, oh, that's so that's so mean. But also, yeah, like defense at the junior level, like there's such a big difference between the NHL level and the AHL level, and then the AHL level and junior hockey. I mean, professional hockey teams are pretty structured, and at the NHL level, things are crazy structured. So and that's in junior, it's basically really like over. defense optional. It's pond hockey. Yeah, know? it's defense optional <laughs> for sure. Okay, so. Score effects, how are they different from when you're up one goal versus if you're up three goals or down one goal versus down three goals? Like, what are the big changes that you see other than extreme bus parking? Basically, what I think about is how is it going to change the way that the team that is ahead is going to play? Because I think that's what happens. Okay, so Toronto's up 4-1 on Boston in Game 7. Okay, that would never happen. (laughs) It would never happen. It's never, (laughs) ever happened. So when a team, let's say, has a has a four one lead, you know, uh, just hypothetically, because we all know teams can come back from that. It's never been done before. So when you are up by that many goals, there's not much benefit to you taking a a, a big risk to create a goal 
because if it goes wrong, there could be an odd man rush the other way. And like we said, giving up a goal against is much more hurtful than it is uh, beneficial to score a goal at that point when you're winning by multiple goals. So you just want kind of want to sit back and not take any chances. If you think that you can win a 50-50 puck race, but you're not quite sure, and the downside is a three on two or a two on one the other way, you're probably better off to just back up and let it be a three on three, force the dump in. And that way, just keep everything to the outside. Keep it one of those tight Minnesota wild checking kind of games. If you're losing, you're taking every goddamn risk and you're playing like the fun, but dumb Leafs or you're playing like the, fun, but dumb. Oh my goodness. It's fun, but it's, uh, it's kind of dumb. You know, uh, Johan Franson, See, you know, I uh, think, sorry, my- I was going to go off there and uh, do another tangent, but maybe I'll just leave that. I think, <laughs> Ideally, you want your team to play like the Carolina Hurricanes. Yeah, if, especially if you're losing. If you're losing, you want your defenseman pinching every single time. You want four players activating in the rush, you know, defenseman coming up and in transition kind of being a forward so that you have extra passing options on the entry. You just you want to be playing more aggressively because you really need a goal. If you're ahead, you are going to be playing much more conservatively. So again, the Minnesota Wild, that's how you're going to play if you're winning. Or at least in the third period when you have a Minnesota one Minnesota plays goal. that way all the time, though. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> their like default setting. Whereas if you are trying to get back in a game, maybe the Carolina Hurricanes, Toronto Maple Leafs under Sheldon Keefe are a good example. Right, or Matt Barzell, just how he plays all the time. Because he is full so send. So Matt Barzell when you're losing, and then the rest of his team when you're winning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, so let's say your team is your team wins 3-1. Let's say. Right? But then you go and you look at the fancy numbers and you see that your team had only 44% possession so Corsi 4 and they had less amount of scoring chances and they lost the high danger scoring chance battle. What does that tell you? Is that like what are the adjustments that you make? Well, first of all, you can click on a button whether it's natural stat trick or money puck or evolving hockey. I think evolving hockey just does it automatically. But um, adjusting for score effects is a really important thing because, long story short, it's been proven mathematically that if you adjust for score effects, they become more repeatable and more predictive of future goals than non-score adjusted metrics. So we should all be using adjusted, you know, score adjusted. Corsi score adjusted scoring chance. Whenever you're using a metric, you should score adjust it just because that helps. I still don't think it necessarily perfectly captures the. I don't know what the right word is for it, but in certain games, you can really see that the score effects have set in, and in other games, it's clear that the team thinks that they still have a chance. Sometimes in the regular season, you can just tell when okay, the team's Okay, so in, out. <laughs> in the New Jersey Buffalo game, I adjusted for score effects 5 on 5. New Jersey had 60%. Possession. Um, fif- after it's 5 nothing after a first period, I mean, there's such a small sample of games at that point. But they only had 53% of the expected goals. Like, Well, yeah, but two-thirds of that game didn't matter. That's the hard part. Exactly. <laughs> That's what, like, you can't... It- but at the same time, we, ha- we have proof that even if you're playing down by three goals, if you're consistently out-shooting the opposition to a crazy extent versus your teammates who are only doing it to a decent extent... We have proof that that matters. You know what I mean? So you still want to be playing well, but how do you perfectly adjust for it? I don't know if we'll ever be able to perfectly statistically adjust for it, but I'm, I'm not convinced that we're, we're doing a, a great enough job of it right now. I'm not sure what the best way is. I'm not a mathematician, but I know that there are some games where you can clearly see that the score effects have kicked in and 
the team's just gone into a shell. And there are other games where, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to matter, usually in junior hockey, when just, you know, the momentum swings back and forth. It's a weird thing. I think it comes down to how structured your team can be, because it is kind of by design. Fair enough. All right. Then again, are teams better off ignoring score effects and playing as if they didn't know what the score was? See, I'm a proponent of that because I think that, listen, if you have a 4-1 lead, you obviously were doing things very well to get that 4-1 lead. Why don't you just continue playing that way and continue to hold the puck because it's very difficult for the other team to score if you have the puck. Unless you're like Brian McCabe or something. Can I offer a bit of pushback? Because even though I want to have the puck and I want to be in the offensive zone as much as possible, if I need to make a high-level skill, high-risk play to maintain possession, then you shouldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what it comes down to. All of a sudden, your risk assessment has to change. I'm talking, you. it shouldn't go auto default, dump the puck in over center ice. Like if you can get a controlled zone entry, go ahead and do that. Control the puck for as much as you can in the offensive zone. Try and get some scoring chances. And then you make smart puck decisions. So maybe at some point, you don't send all three men in below the face-off dots, right? There's a third man high type of situation. There's D aren't pinching unless there is support, whereas maybe in a in a regular setting, you're sending your D all the time. I think there's definitely some decision-making, but I don't think that it should be a mentality of we must get possession and dump the puck in AK, give it right back to them. One interesting example that I, I like to think of is the LA Kings in their heyday, let's say from 2011 to 2015, I think is when they were really in their prime. Even though they were dumping the puck in, their team was built around the dump and chase. They were one of the few teams where even when you looked at the zone entry data, they actually recovered more entries. I think they generated more offense off of dump ins than they did off of entries, just based on how their roster was assembled. But the one thing that they did is they always had the puck. If you look at teams over the last, let's call it 10 years, who were the best at holding leads or, or who was the, the most difficult to play when they had a lead and who was the most difficult to generate scoring chances against? The LA Kings, they, they just dominate the puck. They'd have the, the puck for more than 60% of the game. You'd be losing in the third period. You'd try to get the puck back and they'd be cycling on you in the offensive zone. I think Carolina is more of a, a modern interpretation of that. They're not as you know physical and, and dump it in, win the battle. They're more get the clean entry, hold on to the puck, don't let the other team get it. And there were some great games in the playoffs last year between Carolina and Washington where Carolina had the lead and Washington couldn't touch the puck. Yeah, I remember that game. There was the one game where Washington had under 10 shots in the third period and they just couldn't get the puck back. That's demoralizing. Yeah, I mean, that's... You're talking about just taking the will out of a team. It's like, we're still losing by a few goals and we have no chance of even getting the puck, let alone getting a scoring chance. That's the soccer philosophy of, well, you're losing, so you better come get this ball. You're not going to come get it? All right, we'll just, we'll hold on to it. In hockey, the term, you know, we'll rag it, you know? We'll just hold on to this puck. Come four-track us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much easier with 11 players and a different type of offside rule. But I still think in hockey that the players in the modern game have the skill to do it, but there's always been the emphasis of, you know, chip it out, chip it in, pucks in deep. Yeah, I don't think to the same degree. Like, I don't think you'd ever see a game where a team has 68% possession, which you sometimes see in soccer. Now, what I... Would I like to see the actual mental, like, okay, we're going to go in and think the way that uh, a soccer team would holding the lead? I would love to see that. 
um, because I think it could be effective. And for what it's worth, Pavel Datsuk did kind of have those kind of possession numbers when he played. He is so special. Like, oh my God. The Red Wings, I want to say as a team, were around 60%, but he himself was closer to 70% when he was on the ice. Which is, when you think about it, we talk about, okay, what's a good possession player? Probably like 57%. Pavel Datsuk's sitting out here like 70%. Don't worry about it, everyone. Most skilled player in the league, also the best defensive player in the league. You combine the two. Yeah, he, he had the puck a lot. And the best set of yeah, hands. His team had the puck a lot. Also, throwing the fact that him and Lidstrom are on the ice together a lot, that's, that's <laughs> good hockey. It's ridiculous. Right and Henrik Zetterberg for a time, too. That guy was decent. Marion Hossa, not too bad. Yeah, not bad. Some all right hockey players there. But yeah, score effects. I guess, long story short, they matter. And I think they can. you can see how they tactically impact the game. I think the goal is that you want to eliminate odd man rushes, you want to eliminate backdoor passes, which I'm not sure if the public data currently captures perfectly. I'd be curious to see if once we get access to some closer data when it comes to things that really impact shooting percentage, would we see that score effects do a better job of you know preventing goals than we think or preventing dangerous scoring chances than we think. But I still think that in the first and second periods and for most of the game, you're probably just better off pretending that you don't know the score and just trying to outscore the opposition because the team with more goals tends to win. Um, yes, actually, the team that scores the most goals wins. That's that's how hockey works. Well, that's usually how it works. But then again, sometimes you have some bad offside reviews. Sometimes you have the loser point. Yeah, this, this sport sucks. <laughs> just make it so complicated for everyone. I actually, someone asked me to explain the point system in the NHL and I was like, mm, do I really want to go down this road? Well, it's kind of like trying to explain the draft to someone who's not from the world of sports and they just don't understand the concept of it. And then you're like, wait, yeah, this doesn't make any sense when you. Yeah, I have tried. It. It, it took me two and a half hours. Yeah. And they're like, why? Why is that the case? And you don't have a good answer. And you realize that traditions for the most part are really dumb. <laughs> and it keeps changing every three day. years for some reason. It's like, oh, it's um this year, the team that finishes last gets the first overall pick. We're just going to do snake draft. But now it's like top three teams get a chance at the number one overall pick. Oh, now it's a top five. Oh, now it's everyone. Oh, and now it's a lottery oh, for the top three again. picks. Should we change the rules? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I personally like Brian Burke's idea where it's like if you win the draft lottery, like the first overall, first of all, make it only the first overall pick. And if you win the draft lottery, you can't win for the next three years. Full stop. I can see that. I can see the reasoning for that. Another yeah. thing, there's the whole discussion about is there a better way than a draft lottery, like whether it's the wheel or whether there's some weird midseason tournament. I think it's the once you're eliminated from the playoffs, officially like as a team, the team who accumulates the most points after that. So it's like a reverse order type thing. So if you're, but it's still, it's still in theory, the teams that would collect the most points would be the teams that were eliminated first and then picked up a bunch of loser points because hockey's random. Right, but then at least still it would be, like, you wouldn't have teams actively being terrible for the last four months of the year. There would be some sort of competition associated with that. Like, let's say Ottawa and Detroit play on the last game of the year this year, and whoever wins that game gets the first overall pick. You're telling me you wouldn't watch that game? I mean, I would, but I'm not sure if the players would care about it as much as we think they would. Yeah, well, I mean, they're trying everything else. You might as well try this. And I guess that players are always playing for their next contract, so players aren't going to tank, so at least this would generate some interest league-wide. I don't know. I still think that mathematically, if you looked at it, the teams who were eliminated first, like if you were so bad that you were eliminated in February, 
you're accumulating points for two months, even though you're a terrible team and you're only picking up points in 40% of your games, you were out of it for like two or three weeks longer than anyone else, so you picked up all these points in this weird tournament that we're talking about. So I don't know, maybe points percentage after you're eliminated Ooh, would be a better way of doing that it? That could be cool. Because then at least you're incentivized to win a high percentage of your games. I don't know, there, there's probably a way to do it. I just hate the fact that we incentivize losing in sports. It doesn't seem smart to me. Especially if you try to explain it to like a soccer fan where teams get relegated if they do poorly. It's you kind of do the opposite <laughs> in just, hockey or basketball. Listen, as someone who has a German family and family in Germany where this is prominent, they cannot understand how the NHL works. They they love it because it's entertaining hockey, but they are like, what is going on and why do the rules change every other year? I'm like, you know what? Good question. And do they make important big rule changes? No, they <laughs> change where you can take an, a, a face-off or they, they don't fix the offside rule. That's fundamentally broken. But All right, so that's score effects and how broken the NHL is. I mean, that's just every podcast, isn't it? <laughs> All right, so we've had this sort of extended shift segment and hashtag large announcement. The Staff and Graph podcast has a sponsor and Yay. I know, right? Round of applause for that. Um, and so going forward, this segment will be called the Kovalev shift. And for those of you who don't know why it's being called the Alexei Kovalev shift, um, he once had a five minute shift. And because this segment is between four and five minutes long, we figured that was a pretty apt name. The sponsor... Was it actually five minutes? That doesn't sound possible. Yeah, it was a five-minute shift. <laughs> I mean, I know that he took those, you know, minute-and-a-half to two-minute shifts where he'd just float out there and, you know, wait, see if he could get a odd No, Mike Keenan actually left him out there when he was, I think, 21 years old. So, it's going to be the Kovalev shift brought to you by Major League Socks. The artist formerly known as Bab Socks. Exactly. So... <laughs> All staff and Graph Podcast listeners get a discount using our discount code. So you go online and at checkout, you type in staff graph and you will get a discount code. So it's the holiday season. You can pick yourself up either current player socks like McDavid or we talked about the Sharks. You can get Brent Burns. We also talked about an alumni who is Pavel Datsuk. You can get yourself a pair of alumni socks. So that's where you can go. You go to majorleaguesocks.com and pick yourself up a pair or two of the socks for the holidays. They make a great stocking suffer. I mean, that's what my family's getting. Also, if you want to go for a really ironic gift, you can, you can still buy Bab socks. So I would re highly recommend that as a joke gift to your favorite Leafs friend. All right. So what is our Kovalev <laughs> shift this week? You tell me. I, I, you, you were the one who really, really wanted to discuss this. I think you should lead it off. Okay, so Monday night, the Blackhawks had to play without a top-line winger. They had to play with 11 forwards and 6D and two goalies. And if you think that sounds a little weird, it is, because normally you play with 12 forwards. And they had to do this for what reason, Ian? The salary cap. No, because they are... Well, that is the salary cap, basically. No, They're that is quite it. They had... Essentially what happened is they have players who are ill, they have players who have minor injuries that aren't out long enough to go on injured reserve, so they can't call up anyone because they can't get any salary cap relief, and therefore had to play a man short, which I can't even remember the last time that happened, but it's not good, because that tells you that they are way too close to the cap. 
So I know Ian has some feelings about this. I'll let you take... We'll let you be the Alexei Kovalev and hop on the ice here. So just looking at it right now, I'm, I'm counting off the teams who currently can't afford to add a league minimum player to their roster. Pittsburgh Penguins, Florida Panthers, Detroit Red Wings, Vegas Golden Knights, Chicago Blackhawks, Edmonton Oilers, Washington Capitals, Philadelphia Flyers, Vancouver Canucks, St. Louis Blues, Calgary Flames, Dallas Stars, Toronto Maple Leafs, Buffalo Sabres, Boston Bruins, Arizona Coyotes. I counted 16 there. Half the league can't afford to add a league minimum player to their roster right now. And I get that, you know, injuries happen and players get sick. But how is there not a mechanism in the CBA to be able to call up a league minimum player on an emergency basis? That just doesn't make any sense to me. I think you can have something. There is an emergency recall situation, but I want to say that pertains mostly to goaltenders i know it definitely does pertain to goaltenders because the vegas golden knights had to do it their first year where they had like seven goalies injured um this just seems dumb to me this just seems like you're unfairly punishing teams for spending to the cap yeah i think if they go on ir you you get some type of relief the only thing you don't get relief from is if they miss a game because essentially they're it's basically a healthy scratch at that point um, it gets treated the same way, or a suspension. So, like, when Evgeny Kuznetsov was suspended the first three games of the year, um, the Cavs got no cap relief from that. So, if let's say one of those players that you listed um, on the team that has a double-digit salary gets suspended, and you can't bring up a player now, even though that player is suspended for four or five games. Like, now you're going to play potentially four or five games short, and that's a big problem. But I don't understand why it needs to be. So how long is LTIR? I know that's the, or not LTIR, but like the, the I guess, short-term injured reserve. I What's it called when you put... 10 days, I think. Okay. When you put someone on the injured reserve and you can call someone up in their place, does it need to, I thought it needed to be like two weeks or something it like that. It might be two weeks. Um, long-term injured reserve is, I want to say 10 games or a month. On Robida Island. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the Leafs put... Marner on long-term injured reserve. Because he was going to be out for four to six weeks. Right. And his he's eligible to come back uh, tomorrow against Colorado. So um, that would be the earliest he would be able to come back. Um, but if you're putting a player on IR, it's, uh, it's shorter than LTIR. But I don't think you get the same cap relief. I just think this is dumb. It doesn't need to be a, a rule. If you can have emergency situations where a team is clearly injured or sick and needs some help it reminds me of this one time where the the golden state warriors i remember they played a game with like five or six people and that was it because everyone else was sick or injured and i'm thinking you can't have them call up some guys from their d league or i guess maybe g league now is what it's called to just play some of these minutes because steph curry's literally playing the entire game and he's hurt it's it's dumb it's unsafe i don't know i just i don't understand how you can't get a precaution on an emergency basis to call up a player so that you don't have to play a man short. It just seems dumb to me. Yeah, so uh, long-term injured reserve is 10 games or 24 days. Whoa, that's a long one. Yeah. So there are tons of minor injuries that might take you out for you know a game or two or two or three games, but you don't want to put a star player on LTIR if, you, if you're going to want him in game four or five, you know? Yeah, and I don't remember what the regular IR is, but I know I want to say it's at least a week, if not 10 days. Um, we clearly need to brush up on our uh, CBA. I had to read that in my fourth year of university, and let me tell you, I it was not all that fun. But I did learn a lot. Okay, so what can the NHL do just to kind of 
keep we're we're trolling around the ice here and we're not really doing a whole lot. Um what can the NHL do? Like what changes would you like to see made? Other than like you said, there needs to be an allowance. So like Jacob Markstrom is on leave because uh his father passed away and, and I would just like to say kudos to the Canucks for allowing him to come back and then realize that he wasn't ready and, and let him take time off again. Um, putting the player's mental health first uh, is nice to see. And it's nice to see it being, you know, put out there in the public and everyone's super cool with it now, whereas I feel like 10, 20 years ago, people weren't as... Man, there are people in baseball that are angry when players miss games because their wives are giving birth, and those people are a special kind of people. Um, but what can the NHL do? Because I think the Canucks get relief. If it's personal leave of absence, I think there is relief associated with that. I don't know. In my list of 20 things we need to do to fix the NHL, this is at the bottom of the list. But it's, it's <laughs> What's at the top of the list, Ian? <sighs> Where should we start? Uh, loser points, number one. It's got to be. The, the length of the season, just in general, the NBA is trying to fix theirs. They're trying to get rid of all the back-to-backs. They're trying to get rid of all the three and four nights. They're trying to minimize the travel. I mean, the NHL 82-game schedule is The NHL still has teams playing five and seven, which is worse than three and four and worse than a back-to-back. And it's just dumb. It, it hurts the quality of the product. No one likes watching this. When two teams are both playing on the second half of back-to-back, do you know how crappy that hockey is? Uh, I was at the Toronto Buffalo Sabres game on November 30th. Ken very much attest to that. But this is how it leads to injuries. And if But the Leafs won, so it was okay. But it, it, like we were just talking about quality of <laughs> hockey, it leads to injuries because all of those same players pretty much are playing. And then if you're tied up against the cap and it's not a, a long-term injury, maybe it's just a nick or whatever, you can't call anyone up and that further inhibits the product like it it's just a it's a snowball effect at that point the way the game's officiated i think is a big problem the makeup <sighs> call is garbage there's yeah, there's a lot that i would fix this this is a good podcast topic in itself top 10 things you'd fix about the nhl Alrighty. well i think it's time for us to get off the ice we need some some load management but that was the oh geez i thought we were on a different shift i thought we'd change lines i'm sorry i didn't realize we we're still in the cove left oh but... yeah you bet we were we took a solid four and a half minute shift there so now, that had to have been a punishment right it like, was that, a punishment yeah my key, okay uh so that was the kovalev shift brought to you by major league socks use the code staff graph to pick yourself up a pair or two or maybe even three of your favorite nhl player on a pair of socks and i can attest they're great quality socks like i love mine i wear them basically every game every game day I know I'm getting my dad some because he couldn't stand Babcock when he worked for the Leafs. And now that all these stories are coming out, I'm thinking I, I got to get him a few pairs of Bab socks. It's just, it's too good of a gift. Oh, see, there's uh, one of the coaches on the team at York asked me, he goes, I, I need a pair of Bab socks. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can, I can get you those. So Danny, those are on the way, big guy. Um, with that, we'll move to the mailbag. We got a couple of pretty cool questions, to be honest. All right. What was the, the most interesting one that you found? Do you think there should be more early starts, especially on weekends, for fans who are overseas? If the NHL is trying to grow the game, wouldn't this be a great way to do it? That's a good point, because I lived in Italy for seven months, and keeping up with the NHL is really difficult, because the games were, um, for an East Coast team, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. is, is you know how they normally go. 
overseas, it was 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. for me, and it's really difficult to keep up with. And then when they went out and they played games in the West, it was 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., completely nocturnal. So you could be a huge fan of the NHL, but you don't get a great chance to see it. It's very similar to soccer fans in North America. It's difficult to keep up with all the great soccer because some of it's early in the morning. You know, Some of those early Premier League games are on at like 7 or 8 a.m. I mean, I have no issues watching the 9 a.m. games, and my favorite EPL team pretty much plays at noon every weekend. So, but it's a great point. Like the NHL says, okay, like we're trying to grow the game. A great way you can do that, and it's been talked about a lot, is to stagger starts. We don't need seven games starting at 7 p.m. You can have one at 12:30 and one at one and one at 1:30, and and that way, at least for a few of the games, maybe you have a four o'clock start, which is nine or 10 o'clock over there and the game's done sort of by midnight and that's pretty much what the late night game is on the east coast um you'll get a lot more viewers and interest because i know like my family in germany obviously leon dreisaitl is a huge thing over there he'd call him king leon um and to try and watch an edmonton game right now is like pulling teeth over there I think the hard part is trying to maximize ratings in the United States right now. It's difficult. What, and if what are you doing at noon on a Saturday that is so important? But here's the thing. If you're <laughs> going to get someone in front of their TV to watch something, maybe the thought is, well, it needs to be at 7. If it's at 1 p.m. or 2 p.m., there's not a chance in hell anyone's going to watch this. I don't know. Get, insert team name. But maybe they'll watch it at 7 p.m. at prime time when they're at home. Yeah, I just think That's there's an a argument I've demographic heard. where like, you can afford to have one or two, maybe even three games in the afternoon. Um, and that way you have a longer period of time because like, obviously you and I watch a ton of hockey. I would probably watch one of those afternoon games and then of course we'd watch a 7 p.m. game. I watched a 10 o'clock game every weekend too. So that's two games or three games instead of two games. Now I'd probably end up watching probably four games on any given night. But if you could have the opportunity to space it out, then You've got people in front of the TV longer. They're seeing more ads. Maybe in Europe, you're you're catching the eye of some fans that you generally wouldn't normally catch. And I think that, I mean, obviously during the week, you can't really do it. But Saturday, Sunday. Saturday's probably your best chance. Because Sunday, you know what I've done the last, I was going to say, for the last 10 years, I'm watching the 1 o'clock game. Then I'm watching the 4 o'clock game. Then I'm grabbing some dinner and I'm watching the Sunday night game. See, so <laughs> like the NFL has three start times. Like, I don't see why the NHL can't have a noon or a 1 o'clock start. It just, uh, I'd like to see that happen. And, and maybe that's a way to grow the game. I mean, if they're going to have the global series, you might as well at least make the game accessible uh, to the fans when you're not physically in Europe. I think the 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock kind of thing. I think that works the best, in my opinion, if you're trying to maximize the number of eyes on your sport. Yep. But Saturday would probably have to be the day that you target because Hockey Night in Canada, that's the big thing up north. And in the U.S., you'd be competing with college football, I guess. And it's, you know what's crazy is college football is huge in the U.S. and ho- no one cares about hockey. So that's, the, that's kind of the opposite up here. In Canada, everyone cares about hockey. I don't think that anyone in Tallahassee, Alabama is going to watch hockey, whether it's on at 7 or it's on at 1. Is there a Tallahassee in Alabama? All right, sorry, uh, Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa is where they play football. Yes, yeah. not Tallahassee, Tuscaloosa. Tal- yes. I was going to say, Tallahassee's in Florida. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think anyone in Tuscaloosa, Alabama cares what time an NHL game starts on Saturday. Might be a handful or two. I mean, we would say the same thing about people from Scottsdale, Arizona, but you know, uh, well, a 50 goal scorer from there. <laughs> you can't really say that anymore because all it takes yeah, is one. There's, you know? there's. I don't think there's any Alabama personnel in the NHL. I could be mistaken. I'm Yet. sure people won't hesitate to tweet and yell at me. About I'm it. Hoping we get there. Speaking of soccer, Ian, you and I talked about this offline. Good old Adam Herman had a question. Oh, he's he's teeing you up here because Rachel has a rant that she needed to really just get out there, and the podcast is how we get our rants off. So, what are you going to be ranting about today, Rachel? Um, the Ballon d'Or. What's the Ballon d'Or for the uninitiated? The best soccer player in the world for the year. Is that the award that Messi and Ronaldo have been trading back and forth for the last yeah, decade? Yeah, Messi and a half? won his sixth, which is the most. How many does Ronaldo have? I want to say he has four. And it's basically all leagues. Like, who votes on it? FIFA? Like, members of the FIFA. There's coaches, like, there's managers that vote on it, um, team personnel, members of the media, I believe. Um, but it is no secret that FIFA is quite frankly, the most corrupt sporting organization on earth. I mean, they put a World Cup in Qatar where soccer physically can't really even be played because it's too hot and humid there. Like, it's unsafe. The number of deaths that it added, that have added up because of the building the stadiums and Conditions, working, you know, basically... Yeah. So, yep. okay, yep. let's start there. FIFA's corrupt. That part is not up for discussion. Um, you could just Google Sepp Blatter and that's all you would need to know. Um, there's also a really great book on it and it is escaping me right now. Um, Rachel, this can't be your rant. Everyone knows FIFA sucks. Right. So, FIFA controls the Ballon d'Or voting, essentially, and... I'm not going to sit here and argue that Leo Messi doesn't deserve the Ballon d'Or. The guy is the best soccer player of all time. And to me, like, he's the most entertaining. The things he does are great. However, Robert Lewandowski had uh, 51 goals in 53 games in 2019. And for those of you who aren't aware of how rare goals in soccer are, if there are three goals in a soccer game, it's like, oh my goodness, what an entertaining game that was. So for someone to be averaging nearly a goal a game, it doesn't happen very often. But is he the one that's individually creating all of those goals for himself, or is he the product of crosses that get into him and he is good at finishing? This is always the argument I've heard. He is the most, he's literally the most clinical finisher in the world right now. Like, he's on form, is what I mean. He's playing the best right now, and in terms of... like. If you were to give me one player in the box right now, I would take Robert Lewandowski over anybody in the world. And he finished eighth in voting. He finished behind a goalkeeper. How are you going to explain to me that a goalkeeper had more impact than a dude who scored almost a goal a game in soccer? Like, it's so ridiculous. That's not the argument I'm going to make. And what's funny is I don't I didn't even follow soccer that, that closely over the last year or two. I just know that I've had this argument in the past when... Whoever the big goal scorer of the year is, whether it's you know Harry Kane or whether just insert player's name, some players will score score a goal per game in a really big league, but if they're not a top player on one of the top clubs in the world, I have a hard time saying you deserve the Ballon. So he, you know what I mean? Lewandowski plays for Bayern Munich, which. And he's one of the best players on no, Bayern, no, so I am willing to actually... he is by far the best player on Bayern. Like, he is averaging 1.26 goals per 90 minutes 
per game this year. So he has 34 goals in 31 matches uh, since August, which is when the 2019-2020 season started. So he's over a goal a game for the last seven months, or five months, sorry. And the closest guy on his team to him is 0.9 goals less per game than him. So he is like that far above anyone else. But my bone to pick here isn't that he finished eighth. It is that Ronaldo finished third. He was not good this year. And don't get me wrong, like, I love watching Ronaldo play. I think he's a fantastic soccer player. But you, we're not, this isn't the Drew Doughty Norris where we're awarding things based on lifetime achievement. Virgil van Dyke finished second and he deserved it. Like, you could make the argument that he deserved to win because he was that good. But to me, putting Ronaldo ahead of guys like Sadio Mane, Robert Lewandowski, um, Kylian Mbappe, like, you can't do it. Right, the the voting and this is where it pisses me off is it's basically corrupt because it's like oh yeah we gotta vote for Ronaldo because like yeah he's one of the best of all time so if I don't vote for him even though my votes are made public people are gonna be angry I'm not gonna get as much money because there are bribes associated with this let's not kid ourselves. Well, do you remember when Sidney Crosby won back to back Con Smythes that he deserved neither? Like it's, <laughs> when Phil Kessel deserved the first one and Malkin won the should have won the second me, one. To me, it's like. Your your organization is already corrupt, and now you're taking your most notable... Like, it's one of the biggest awards in worldwide sport. And you're allowing that to be corrupt, too? Like, make the votes public. See, even if they were public, people would still make dumb votes, just because I don't have much faith in people anymore when it comes to who we're voting on for stuff. But at least you'd be able to call it out. Like, no one's going to argue that Messi wasn't one of the best in the world. But for people who didn't have Robert Lewandowski in their top 10, like, you'd have to get called out at that point, right? Or people who had um, Ronaldo listed as number one. He absolutely was not. the. He wasn't even... I don't a, know. I would even say he wasn't even a top five player in the world this year. Like, he just had an off year. And that's okay. But you can't just be handing this guy votes because he's one of the best of all time. That's not how it works. Like, this isn't a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> Nick, Nick Lidstrom's last Norris Trophy was very much a Lifetime Achievement Award. Right. And at this point, like, I, I think we're in an era right now where soccer is, is very much like tennis. You're in the golden age. Like, people aren't going to really appreciate Messi, Ronaldo, Harry Kane, um, Robert Lewandowski. Oh, Harry Kane is not in the same conversation. No, but I'm sense. saying like they're not going to appreciate guys like Kane and Lewandowski because they came in the same era as Ronaldo and Messi. And those are two very, very good soccer players. But the fact that they came when arguably two the the two greatest soccer players of all time are playing in the same way that like Federer and Nadal, you can have that argument all day. And then you have yeah. Djokovic I mean, on top of it. Like... It's you just if if you chose to be a tennis player and then you, Roger Federer and and Rafa Nadal were in your way, it's just man you couldn't have picked the worst time to to come up and have your yeah time. like it just pisses me off that like honestly your organization is already corrupt as it is and now you make the one like saving grace nice thing about your organization corrupt too. Like, it's so clear that everyone was like, oh, yeah, we'll just throw Ronaldo a, a pity vote because he's Ronaldo. Which, I mean, it's a yearly award. This isn't like a decade award kind of thing. 
I mean, if we're being honest, could we really say the same thing about Messi right now? Is he's not the same player he was five years ago? Uh no, he's so good right now. He's still like he's still dominating. Like he does things where I'm just like, okay, yep, chalk it up. There's nothing you can do to stop that. Like on a weekly basis. Are we sure he's better than than Neymar and Mbappe? Ooh, Neymar was not good this year. He was awful. I don't. I, I've, I clearly was, haven't watched. I'm soccer pretty sure well he was injured most of the year, and when he was playing, he wasn't very good. He didn't even make the top fifteen. I don't believe. Like that's how poor he was. Since people have already tuned out, for anyone who's like myself, curious about maybe getting into more soccer, especially now that you know the Leafs are starting to play more possession style of hockey, how would you recommend getting back into soccer? Because I, I play the FIFA games, and I haven't been watching Premier League. So games. there's a couple teams that when they play are super entertaining. It's because they're using some more um, innovative tactics. Liverpool. Uh, it's that the 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 Jurgen Klopp. Yes, sir. The Gegen Press or whatever it's called. He likes playing a really aggressive forecheck, a really aggressive yes. press. So Jurgen Klopp um, actually has a ton of things. Uh, Man City as well. So those are two EPL teams. Um, oh, Man City's coached by Pep, the guy who used to coach the, the Tiki Taka Barcelona Exactly. Teams. I was just going to say you could watch Barcelona too. Um, those are... I mean, they still have a lot of the same players, at least Messi, and then everything kind of you know follows in. Who are the midfielders there now? Because Iniesta, Xavi are the two that I always think of, but I don't know who's in the midfield anymore. Rakitic still there? No, he is not. Uh, but they have Antoine Griezmann okay. up top. But yeah, if you're... Ooh, they yeah, got they him? Did. Nice. So he was so good on Atletico for when, a couple of years. If ago. you're trying to get back into soccer, you want to learn... Like Sheldon Keefe is a huge proponent of, of soccer taxes. So is Ralph Kruger because he used to... Um, be in at Southampton, which is also in England. Um, those are three teams to watch, and I believe you can watch them on DAZN or DAZN, whatever the hell it's called. Um, but you should see some tactics modified, obviously, um, make their way over into hockey, um, which is, I love it. Like, it's super interesting. Um, I don't love Liverpool, but I'm never not going to cheer for Jurgen Klopp. Um, and all of those teams have star players on them so Barcelona obviously has Messi and like basically their entire team is is stars and Liverpool has been to back-to-back Champions Leagues so you know you're getting yeah Liverpool there. Man City has always been the team that that reminded me the most of those high skill teams like the the top Bayern teams from a few years ago the top Real Madrid yeah. teams the top Barcelona so those are the teams. three teams they kind of play that, that style uh, if you want to sort of have an understanding of how the beautiful game is played at its very best and maybe how tactics can be modified to bring over seas to play hockey that would be um those would be your three teams when's the next big international tournament uh the euro is next year nice and germany got drawn in a group with france and portugal which ironically are the last three major tournament winners so germany won the world cup in 2014 Portugal won the 2016 Euro and France won the 2018 World Cup. So that is a lot of the pundits were saying it's the biggest group of death probably in the last 25 years. Like it's massive. Is one of those teams going to get eliminated? In the group stage, yeah. Which UEFA is not going to be happy about because that'll be poor for ratings. But the first uh, group games where you have like a Portugal-France or you have a... Uh, Germany versus France. Those are going to be huge. Yeah, like I might have to. So that group is being played in Germany uh, in Munich. So I I might have to. May or may not have a ticket to that game because Rachel has friends in high places. I might have to mosey on over just to be there for uh, for the atmosphere because I think it'll be um, anytime you can watch that quality of, of any type of sporting event. I think uh, 
you should take that opportunity. And with that, I was at the. Oh, can I just quickly tell a mini story? How I was at the. Uh, oh yes. El Clat. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've, to- I've to- told anyone this on the podcast, but I was at El Clasico in 2017, the one where Messi scored the last minute goal, took off his jersey, and kind of showed it to the Real Madrid crowd at Bernabeu. And I was I'm not even a huge for that. Bar- <laughs> And I'm not even a crazy huge Barcelona Real Madrid fan. I'm just a, a big fan of sports. And being at that event was one of the coolest moments of my life. It was just the, the party in the street earlier in the day. And then everyone going home after the game, screaming and swearing outside the arena. It was just it's a really, really cool atmosphere. I, I love sports. All right. And with that, that is the end of the Staff and Graph podcast for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. After I go purchase a bunch of socks, and you should too. Yeah, we'll try to tighten up our shifts for next time. Sorry about the uh, the Alexei Kovalev, Ilya Kovalchuk. Who else has been known to kind of like, you know, mosey out there long after he should have come off the ice? Oh, there's there's definitely a, a few, I want to say. But it's... Patrick Patrick Kane. Kane has some long shifts. Yeah, and we kind of moseyed around, got on and off topic, which you could consider being like productive and unproductive on while you're on the ice. You know, we got some good habits, we got some bad habits. Uh, still working out the kinks, try to get better each and every day. So uh, go get yourself some bab socks for Christmas, and uh, your dad will love them. Yep. <laughs> uh... And that'll do <laughs> Until for next week. this week's edition of the Staff and Graph Podcast. We will be back next week. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph Podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic, and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. Hold up. 